Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, committed to pioneering the next generation of innovative lung cancer treatments. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with your host, Dr. Anise Chagpar. Yale Cancer Answers features the latest information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, it's a conversation about lung cancer with Dr. Sarah Goldberg. Dr. Goldberg is an associate professor of internal medicine and medical oncology at the Yale School of Medicine, where Dr. Chagpar is a professor of surgical oncology. So, Sarah, maybe we can start off a little bit by talking about lung cancer. I mean, when when many people think about lung cancer, they think of it as kind of a, a devastating uh, disease. Um, so tell us a little bit more about how many people get it, who gets it, and historically, what has been the prognosis? So lung cancer is a very common cancer. It's the second most common cancer in the U.S. among both men and women. Um, but you're right, it, it absolutely can be a, a devastating illness. And because of that, it's the number one cause of cancer deaths among, again, both men and women. So it's common and it's a, a common cause of death from cancer. But I think um, a lot has changed in recent years. I know we'll, we'll talk about a lot of that. Um, but some of the things that are, are you know, we've known for a long time now is that um, people tend to be older when they get lung cancer, although some people are, are quite young. Smoking is a risk factor for lung cancer. But again, some people have never smoked a day in their life and, and they can still get the disease yeah. So, and and how does genetics play into it? I mean, on this show, we talk a lot about genetics as well. But when it comes to lung cancer, most of us think that, you know, this is really a smoking-related cancer. Although, as you say, there are people who never smoked a day in their life who get lung cancer. So, for them, is it really genetics or, or what's an underlying cause for that? There's a lot about lung cancer that we still don't know. And your question is a great one. And it's it's something that we still don't fully understand about lung cancer. So because smoking is such a common um, risk factor, such a common cause for lung cancer, um, when we see someone who's smoked who gets lung cancer, we think that it's probably related in some in some way. But again, when people have never smoked, we really don't understand the cause for the vast majority of those cancers. Um, genetics when you think of genetics in terms of, you know, inheriting a gene from your parents or passing it along to kids, um, that's not really um, common at all in lung cancer, like it is in other cancers like breast cancer, where, where it tends to be more common. Um, we, we just don't see that very much in lung cancer. So why some people who have never smoked get it is still really an, an outstanding question in, in the field. Um, there are some other environmental risks, but much, much lower than the risk of smoking. So secondhand smoke is is also a risk, but again, much lower. Um, there are the risk um, with radon is is always a question. Um, there, there probably is some risk there, but um, how to quantify that is very difficult. So, mo- for many people who who haven't smoked or have not haven't smoked much, it, it's it's still very unclear why they get this disease. Yeah, you know, the other thing that we talk about in a lot of different cancers is that you know, any particular cancer, lung cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer, whatever, is rarely one disease. Is lung cancer like that as well? Is it, you know, or are all lung cancers essentially the same? So this is one of the things that I think is the most interesting and and probably exciting about lung cancer is that 
Up until a couple years ago, we really thought there were two types of lung cancer, small cell and non-small cell lung cancer. But over the last really 10 or 15 years, it's become clear that it's multiple diseases that are all labeled as lung cancer because of where it started, where the cancer started in the lung. Um, and, and this is one of the, the biggest advances in the field um, over the last several years is the understanding of the different types of lung cancer. And it's not just so that we can you know, define things in a different way. It's really because it impacts treatment and, and how well different cancers respond to different treatments, um, how well someone's going to do with various treatments. And so differentiating these different types of lung cancers is absolutely critical so that we can get the best treatments for patients. We still do think about small cell and non-small cell, but mostly um, you know, within the, the realm of non-small cell lung cancer is where we've been able to divide things up even more and understand mostly the, the molecular basis of lung cancer, uh, meaning that the cancer has different mutations, and that is really part of what defines it. Now, you just asked me about mutations, and I said it's not very common in, in, in lung cancer, but... Um, I'm talking about a different type of mutation here. So it's not very common that people have you know, a genetic predisposition to lung cancer, but finding mutations in the cancer itself is actually quite common and, and really important. Yeah. So, you know, we've had other guests on the show here as well who who talk about this concept where, you know, a, a biopsy is taken and the tumor is profiled for a number of mutations, genetic mutations that it could have that could really... T- Tailor therapy, and it, it sounds like lung cancer is in that in that realm as well. Tell us more about the the mutations that you look for, and kind of the subclassifications that you think about um, when you're treating a lung cancer patient. Absolutely, lung cancer is a, a great example of a disease where the the molecular classifications are, are so important. And so, whenever we see a patient with a non-small cell lung cancer that's that's advanced, uh, meaning it's stage four, it's critical to get molecular or mutation testing. People will call it different things: molecular testing, mutation testing, tumor profiling is sometimes used. Um, and so that is now entirely a standard part of treatment. And what's really changed over the years is what we need to test because we can act on. So when I first started in this field now 10 years ago, there was really just one mutation that we can target, and that was the EGFR mutation. And that was so exciting at the time because it was the, really the first time in lung cancer that we could you know, get a biopsy, as you say, and do the mutation testing. And if we found this mutation, we had a great treatment, which is a targeted therapy pill, an EGFR inhibitor. And that is still the case today where we're looking for EGFR mutations. And we will target um, those cancers with pills that that treat that specific abnormality in the cancer. It's what some people will call targeted therapy or precision or personalized medicine. But now instead of just one mutation that we can target, we have several that, that have been discovered in lung cancer that have associated targeted therapies. So it's it, it's we've really come a long way in just a couple of years where now we don't test one, but we test many uh, genes because we, we may be able to find a mutation that is um, important in that cancer. So tell us about the other mutations that you look for. 
So just thinking about it in, in a timeline, so um, ALK was probably the, the next one that, that was discovered. ALK is a, a mutation in, in, in a gene that, again, can um, be part of a, a lung cancer, especially lung adenocarcinomas. Most of these mutations, really all these mutations are mostly found in adenocarcinomas, which is a type of non-small cell lung cancer. Um, and so ALK is another mutation like the EGFR mutation where if we find it, we get I get very excited for patients because we have fantastic therapies for ALK. Um, so, so that's a, another one. It's rare. So ALK um, really rearrangements are found in just a couple of percent of lung cancers, but, but again, absolutely critical to look for because of the great options for treatment we have. Another, another gene that we always test is called ROS1, and that also can have a mutation in it. And the, the list keeps going on. So that was really all we had for a couple of years, but really in the last, I would say, year or two, there's been even more of uh, discovery of, of, of alterations. So now we always will need to assess for BRAF mutations. BRAF is a gene that has Common, commonly has mutations in, in melanoma, but more recently was also found to have mutations in lung cancers. Again, just a couple of percent of lung cancers have BRAF mutations, but now we have targeted therapies that we can use for that. Um, and then really recently, within just the last you know, couple months or year, we look at um, MET mutations NTRAC mutations and RET. I might have forgotten a couple. There's getting to be so many. So, you know, we, we have now several new FDA approvals for these targeted therapies. But if you don't know the mutation is there, you're not going to know to use the drug. So it's, it's really become very important to test even more than ever before. And so is that, you mentioned that this is standard, but you've mentioned now, oh my gosh, like at least half a dozen <laughs> yeah. mutations that you look for. So is that something that is standard of care. So any of our listeners, no matter where they go, whether they go to, you know, a large academic uh, cancer center or whether they go to a, a local private practice um, oncologist, is that something that is going to be tested for, for them, for their lung cancer across the board and across the country? Or is this still something that really hasn't found its way out of academia? yet? What a great question. So it absolutely should be standard of care because we have FDA approved therapies when you find one of these targets that aren't useful unless the target is there and you don't know to use it unless you find it. So this should be part of standard of care for every patient, no matter where they are. The testing is available anywhere, whether, you know, at Yale, we do the testing in-house. So our pathology department is fantastic. They do the testing here, but there's companies that do this testing now. So it is available anywhere in the U.S. Um, it's a matter of whether it's done. And I think that's the bigger question. So I think now because EGFR mutations have been part of the standard um, testing, uh, you, know, you really have to test for EGFR mutations. And that's been for uh, in 2004 was when the kind of the drug was uh, the, the mutation was first discovered. So we've had um, you know we've known about EGFR mutations for over, well over a decade. I think that's become very standard to test. And then the other ones I mentioned initially, ALK and ROS1, those have become more common because they've been around for a while too. Um, but the other ones that I mentioned are equally important. The issue is that they're more recent so that, you know, sometimes things take longer to catch on and they're also really rare. So each one of the other ones I mentioned are probably, you know, no more than 2% of lung adenocarcinomas. So they're rare, but really important to test for. So I would hope and expect that they're being tested in every patient with an advanced form of 
adenocarcinoma. But I, I suspect that that's not always happening because of, you know, the rarity of them and because they're, they're, it's kind of a really a relatively recent advance in lung cancer, but they should be tested part of standard. Now we actually test for a whole lot of other genes at Yale. And I think at a lot of other, other academic centers. So that part is uh, maybe not as necessary. You know, we test for at least 50 genes at Yale. And, and some of that is trying to think about clinical trials for patients and other things. But those, as you said, more than half a dozen genes are, are standard of care, absolutely important to test for. And is that covered by insurance? I mean, is that expensive? Is this, you know, I, I'm kind of trying to think of this from the standpoint of our listeners who may have lung cancer, may have family members or friends who have been recently diagnosed and and who may not have known to ask, you know, mm-hmm. what is my ALK status? Um, you know, do I have a, a, a RAS mutation? Um, and and so, you know, in broaching that subject, one of the, the issues that always comes up is, number one, uh, what is the cost? And number two, is it covered by my insurance? And then, of course, number three, um, can I really avail myself of the therapies? But we'll get to the therapies part in a moment. Um, what about the testing? Is, is it covered or not covered? Is it expensive? If people haven't been tested, can they get their own specimens and send them off to some lab that can do a commercial test if they so wanted? How, how does that all work? Right. So because this, the testing and the treatment is standard of care and approved by the FDA, it's, it's covered by insurance. So these tests are expensive. It's all you know, genetic testing, DNA sequencing, things like that. But, um, but it's covered. It's, it's, it's standard. So it's covered by insurance. Um, so in terms of if, if someone could just go, you know, t- do their own testing, I, I, I doubt that. Um, the nice thing is that once you've had a biopsy, it goes to the lab and it stays there for, as far as I understand, decades. So if, you know, if someone asks their oncologist, have I had this test? And the answer is, oh, no, actually, we didn't test for all these. It's not like all is lost. You can still test it. So I think that has to be done from the doctor's office and the pathology department. But it absolutely could be done, you know, even years after a diagnosis is made. All right. Well, we're going to dig more into what happens after you have that information in terms of treatment right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more about lung cancer with my guest, Dr. Sarah Goldberg. Support for Yale Cancer Answers comes from AstraZeneca, an industry leader in the development of breakthrough immuno-oncology therapies across multiple tumor types and stages of cancer. Learn more at AstraZeneca-US.com. This is a medical minute about melanoma. While melanoma accounts for only about 4% of skin cancer cases, it causes the most skin cancer deaths. When detected early, however, melanoma is easily treated and highly curable. Clinical trials are currently underway to test innovative new treatments for melanoma. The goal of the Specialized Programs of Research Excellence in Skin Cancer, or SPORE grant, is to better understand the biology of skin cancer with a focus on discovering targets that will lead to improved diagnosis and treatment. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to Connecticut Public Radio. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Sarah Goldberg. We're talking about lung cancer, and right before the break, Sarah was telling us about how lung cancer is actually a much more complex disease than we thought 
previously. No longer do we think about it just as small cell and non-small cell, but really um, lung cancer has burgeoned into a whole plethora of, of diseases based on genetic mutations of the cancer itself uh, that can be profiled and potentially targeted for therapies. Um, and this testing, while expensive, is covered by insurance. So, Sarah, the one question I wanted to pick up on just before we move on to the treatments, which I think is going to be super interesting, is what about for our non-insured, uh, uninsured um, patients? Um it's great that the testing is covered by insurance, but if somebody doesn't have insurance, as many uh, many American uh, patients don't, um, what are their alternatives? Yeah, lack of insurance is is difficult in a lot of different ways, not just with testing, right? It also comes down to you know, doctor's visits and treatment too. So I think that's something that you know we, we often, maybe not often, but we sometimes see in, in our patients. And um, you know, we work at Yale, we work very closely with with multiple people to try to to work on these issues, especially our social workers. And try to make every effort to get people the care that they need in whatever way possible, whether that's, you know, helping them find insurance or, or figure out other resources. So, you know, because it's such an important part of care to get this testing done, I think that it kind of is wrapped up in the whole the whole um, issue with diagnosis and then finding the right treatment. It's all part of that. Yeah. So typically we're able to to find a way to, to cover this in, in some capacity for patients. Yeah. I mean, we could do a whole show on um, all of the implications of um, having so many millions of Americans uh, being uninsured and, and what that does for the health of our nation. But that's another show. <laughs> let's 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 turn to uh, a happier uh, uh, topic, which is, um, you know, now that we have an understanding of all of these um, mutations that um every cancer can kind of uh, exhibit. So we we now can kind of figure out what makes one cancer different from another. And once we can figure out what makes a cancer tick, we can potentially um, stop it from ticking um, through personalized therapies and, and targeted agents that can really address these pathways. So can you talk a little bit about what we know um, and what are some of the exciting drugs that um, that really address each of these mutations? Sure. So as you mentioned, there's there's many different exciting drugs for for the various mutations. And each one really generally does the same thing. It, it tries to block the activity of the abnormal mutation that's leading to, you know, that it's the abnormal mutation that's causing the cancer cell to grow and be abnormal. And if you could block that, it could be extremely effective. And so that's true regardless of which of these mutations um, are found in the cancer. Um, so, so since we've, you know, EGFR is a, a great example because we've known about it for, for the most amount of time, you know, there was an, an EGFR inhibitor that we used initially called erlotinib that was really effective, but over the years, we've realized that other EGFR inhibitors that have been developed since then 
are even more effective and seem to work in more more people and work for longer. Because one thing that I haven't mentioned is that these drugs, while they can be extremely effective and you know help people's symptoms and shrink the cancer and work for a long, long time, when the cancer is at an advanced stage, it's, it's not curable. So the drugs can work. And again, they can work for years. But at some point, the cancer gets smart and, and grows despite these targeted therapies. So as we've developed newer and better drugs, they tend to work for longer. Um, and so that that's really what we're trying to do is, is find drugs that work for a really long time and, and make this cancer a chronic disease um, that people may not be able to cure or, or get rid of entirely, but, but they can live with it for a long time. And so in, in each of the different targeted therapy realms for each mutation, we have great examples of drugs that you know, can give people many more years of life than they otherwise would have had. And with each of these drugs, though, there's presumably side effects, right? Um, so, so what does that look like? So you're right. Any drug can have its share of side effects and it's variable depending on the drug. But overall, the, the targeted therapies tend to have less side effects than kind of our classic cancer drugs, mainly chemotherapy, um, because they're targeted. They're, they're aimed specifically at the mutation that that's the abnormality uh, in the cancer cells, which doesn't exist in other cells. In those other cells, in the normal cells in the body, the non-cancer cells, the mutation is not there. So the, the drugs don't tend to bother the normal cells quite as much as with chemotherapy. So again, every drug is different. Um, some of the more common ones that we sometimes see is rash. Um, sometimes people are more tired than they usually are, but generally they're much better tolerated. So it's it's almost like a win-win. They work better than other cancer therapies and they're, they're, they have less side effects. So again, when we find one of these mutations that we can target in a patient, I, I am very excited. And I think hopefully my enthusiasm catches on to the with the patient and, and they get very excited too, especially once they see how well it works. Now, you know, when people are, are talking about therapies, I mean, on the one hand, um, clearly they're really excited about these really effective therapies um, that last really uh, a long time. Um, but the other thing is that they don't really want to come to the hospital um, and have an IV infusion of a therapy. Mm -hmm. And when people think about chemotherapy, that's what they think about. They think about being in the infusion suite, hooked up to an IV, losing their hair, getting nauseous. And repeating that cycle um, multiple times. So uh, are these therapies IV? Are they oral? Um, how well do they fit into people's lives, especially if we're talking about taking them for a long time and um, making what was previously thought of as a fatal disease um, more of a chronic one that you can live with rather than, than die from necessarily? Right. So, so you're right. The IV treatments are, are challenging because that you have people usually have to come in fairly frequently for them and you, you spend time here instead of where you, you want to be. Um, these drugs are all pills. Um, and so that does make it a really nice part of it is that you take, you know, take your daily pill or twice a day pill, like you would take your blood pressure pills and, and you don't need to come into the, the hospital nearly as often as, as on IV medicines. You know, I will say that as exciting as, as all of this is, and hopefully you can, you can sense my enthusiasm for it. It still is only maybe about, uh, maybe 20 or so 25% of patients with lung cancer that we can find one of these mutations that we can target. So it's, it's, you know, the numbers are going up as we find more mutations, but it's still, unfortunately not, not everyone. And so, um, 
there's been a huge amount of work in other areas of lung cancer too, where we can't find a, a targetable mutation. Um, and then the other, the other, and that's mainly with immune therapies. The other part of it is, well, well, what about the, you know, the other 75% of people, what's in their cancer if they don't have targetable mutations and, and what can we do about that? So I think those two areas are so critical as well, because we just, you know, we haven't come far enough to, to figure out a, a targeted therapy strategy for every patient yet. Yeah, and I think that both of those issues are are so critical. So, um, so let's let's dig into those. So first, before we get there, these targeted therapies. You know, for example, in breast cancer, we we have targeted therapies as well, um, which often are given in combination with chemotherapy. But it sounds like these targeted therapies can be used as uh, sole agents. Is that right? That's right. Yes, that's right. There's there is some some research going on trying to combine them with chemotherapy, but you're right. As at this point, the way we use them is the the targeted therapy alone. They've been, you know, really in in almost every case, they've been there's been trials comparing the targeted therapy compared to chemotherapy, and it's superior in in all the cases. Um, again, when you have the target and you use the targeted therapy, it's it's better than using chemotherapy, and and we haven't found. A reason to combine it. Although there, again, there is some research looking at if combining it is beneficial. The standard is to use the targeted therapy alone. Yeah. I mean, it's it's really nice for a logistic point of view and and side effect point of view as well. Yeah. I mean, that's so exciting, right? Is that, you know, it it does kind of sound like if you've got one of these mutations, um, you can, you can kind of take a pill and, uh, you know, have few, fewer side effects and a better outcome than being hooked up to chemo and you can take your pills on vacation with you to wherever <laughs> you're going to go and and live your life. And it sounds like that is just um, so exciting in terms of an advance. But it does bring us to the question of what if you're not in one of those lucky groups that has a known targetable um, mutation. You mentioned immunotherapy. Um, you know, we've talked in this show about uh, immunotherapy a little bit, and I'd like to dig into uh, immunotherapy for lung cancer. But the one thing that some have found is that for some cancers, they actually still will look for a checkpoint um, in order to use a checkpoint inhibitor, just so, so to see what people's PD-1 status is. Um, but in other cancers, that isn't necessarily something that necessarily plays into whether or not you can use immune therapy. So how does it work in lung cancer? This has been a huge area of research over the last few years in lung cancer and other cancers, as you mentioned. In lung cancer, we have now started using immune therapy for, I would say, almost every patient with advanced cancer, again, stage four cancer, um, who does not have one of those mutations that we were talking about before. Again, if you have one of the mutations, the targeted therapies are great options. But otherwise, typically immune therapy is going to be some part of the treatment because of how effective it can be. And your question about the PDL1 status, in lung cancer, it is really important. So just like we get those mutation tests, and it's so important for, for patients to find the best treatment for them, it's the same with PDL1 status. So PDL1 is not um, a, you know, a mutation or a gene like we were talking about with, with the other um, area in lung cancer treatments. Um, but it's a protein on the surface of, of cells, of cancer cells or, or of immune system cells. But in lung cancer, we look at the cancer cells. And that, that, that protein, that PDL1 uh, marker, can tell us if immune therapy is 
more or less likely to work. So it's not a perfect test by any means. I've had patients where the PDL1 status is zero, which tells you it has a low chance of working. However, they've done incredibly well with, with immune therapy. Um, and sometimes it's high and it, the drug just doesn't seem to work. So it's not a perfect biomarker, but we do use it as part of standard treatment in lung cancer. And so when I meet a new patient with, with lung cancer, again, a stage four advanced form of lung cancer, we always will check mutations and PDL1. And the reason really is if if someone has a high level of that PDL1 marker, we think we might be able to get away with just giving immune therapy, which just like we were talking about with targeted therapy, how it's nice to avoid the chemotherapy if you can. It's the same thing with immune therapy. With a high level of PDL1, there's a high chance of the immune therapy working even on its own. And so we'll try that oftentimes instead of giving chemotherapy or other medicines. And so if you are PDL1 low and you don't have another targeted uh, or another targetable mutation, those patients are more likely to get uh, chemotherapy, but they'll still get the immunotherapy as mm -hmm. well. Is that right? That's right. So, so because immune therapy can work so well, we will... Um, we will typically give it no matter what, unless there's a contraindication if someone has, you know, a, an, an underlying autoimmune disorder or such. Um, but yes, if someone has that a low PDL one status or really no PDL one status, then we, we we don't think, and this is based on several different clinical trials, we don't think we can get away with just immune therapy on its own, and it seems to be much more effective if you combine it with something else. And that the something else is a bit of a, a question mark in lung cancer. Until recently, it used to be we would combine it with chemotherapy, so people would get a combination of chemo and immune therapy. But more recently now, based on several recent clinical trials, now we're actually combining two different immune therapies together. So avoiding chemotherapy, but combining the immune therapies. And that's an area of future research that is currently ongoing. We have, we have several different, many different clinical trials at Yale looking at these different combinations of immune therapy, really trying to get away from the chemotherapy if we can, um, and, and using combinations of immune therapy to really try to, to, to um, beat the cancer and, and really try to improve patients' quality of life and, and how long they're able to live with this. Dr. Sarah Goldberg is an Associate Professor of Internal Medicine and Medical Oncology at the Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We hope you'll join us next week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on Connecticut Public Radio.